Hello, this is OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. Welcome back. We have a lot of great stuff this week. Cosmo Macero and I are talking business and news of the week on 321 Go. Then Cosmo talks to Dan Kennedy, media critic and author of Return of the Moguls, a book about efforts to save and maintain the Boston Globe and the Washington Post. And I talked to Senator Barbara Latellian about her surprise cameo on Fox & Friends this week. And in two minutes with Tom, our CEO, Tom O'Neill, discusses Boston's soon-to-be new police commissioner, William Gross. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Hello, and welcome to three, two, one, go on OA on air where each week we take a brief but purposeful look at three important topics in the world of public affairs, business, government, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, is childcare a legitimate campaign expense for political candidates? It could be in Massachusetts if some lawmakers get their way. And a Bay State company is making revolutionary strides in supporting the made in America economy. It's a case of rental housing meets retail and U.S. manufacturers are the winners. Finally, Ivanka Trump abruptly shut down her fashion line this week. Some people are sad, many more are not. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyan Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA On Air. Kyan, it's great to have you back as always. Always a pleasure. All right then, let's get to it. When you think of campaigns and campaign expenses, what comes to mind? Usually staffing and signage and get out the vote operations and public relations and media and polling. But what about childcare? That's right, candidates for office in Massachusetts would be able to use their campaign funds, that's money donated to them by supporters, for certain childcare expenses under a bill that received initial approval in the House this week. Under this measure, a candidate would be able to use the campaign money they raised for customary and reasonable child care expenses incurred while the candidate is campaigning on his or her own behalf or attending campaign events from the date nomination papers become available until the general election. So it's not a year-round kind of thing. Sponsor of this, Senator Patricia Jalen, a Somerville Democrat, Back in May, she said treating child care as a campaign expense would remove a barrier for some women who wish to run for office. Cayenne, hold on a second here. Why is it just women? I don't think it is just women. I think it's great that it will benefit women historically, um, even as more and more families have working moms and working dads. Child care does often fall more to the mother. Um, not always, but for the most part. And I think that it's been something that has restricted people who have maybe bigger goals um, to run for office and say, what am I going to do? How am I going to afford it? I get the concept. I think it makes sense. It, it's certainly in, <clears throat> in keeping with the sort of the progressive nature of Massachusetts and making life and working life better for just about anyone, in this case, political candidates. I, I'm, I'm a little curious about... Pat Jalen specifically referring and only to women. I, w- I wonder what you think about that because I actually believe that this is equally as, uh, uh, as suitable and, and potentially important for, for male candidates. 
I agree. I think everybody wins. Candidates across the board who have kids win if this happens. <clears throat> I don't think that we can ignore the fact that historically women are the caretakers primarily more for their kids and or more responsible for figuring out the daycare structure in a family. So if you're no longer getting paid because maybe you left your job to campaign or you've been home with your kids and now you need to identify funding to pay for daycare, which we all know is very expensive, um, then this this supports you. It's I think I, I agree. I think it helps everybody, men and women, but there is a skew towards this benefiting more women having the option to go out and pursue something that perhaps they couldn't have before because they felt constrained financially and logistically by who's going to take care of their kids. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> that's really well put. This is this is another way to empower and encourage women to run <clears throat> the public office. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's important. I do think I will make a prediction that this if it becomes law, will be abused at some point and will be a page one story in the Boston Globe. It, and because all campaign finance <laughs> laws are abused in some way, and this seems like a classic hacker type of thing where someone's going to take advantage of it. I do believe the overriding good will prevail, though. I think we should go with that theory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always more skeptical than you. Okay, this past week at the White House was the president's annual Made in, Made in America initiative, which is uh, actually a pretty positive and exciting annual event now where Made in the USA products and manufacturers and companies are highlighted by, uh, by President Trump at the White House. You know, right here in Massachusetts, the Made in America economy and, and, and movement is really being supported in a different way. company right here in Massachusetts, Northeast Suites, has in their Go Local category, of short-term corporate apartments and vacation rentals. Cayenne, what if every single thing in your living space, your home, your apartment, your house, was made in America? I'd like it. You'd like it? I think that makes me feel good. Do you think it'd be easy to do that? Because I have learned by studying this company that it is literally almost impossible to outfit your entire home. Pretty difficult. With things only made, made in America. Pretty hard. So Patrick Flynn, the CEO of Northeast Suites and the, and the creator of Go Local, uh, getting a tremendous amount of media coverage for this, has sourced every like a hundred items, everything from the furniture and the appliances and electronics, down to the uh, the sheets, the linens, the uh, the shower curtain rings. Everything is made in America. That's he, impressive. It is impressive. He couldn't find a paper towel holder. You know what he did? He hired his father-in-law to manufacture them in a warehouse using like stuff from Home Depot. We didn't have any paper towel holders that were made in America. No, there's no toasters our... made. There's no toasters made in America. It's a little disturbing. It is disturbing. Nonetheless, it's one of those things you don't stop to think about a lot. <laughs> that's right. He, so, so they, so, so Northeast, so Go Local found a company that 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 refurbishes classic sort of throwback toasters. They're using those. It's pretty remarkable. I'm leaving out the best part. Everything is not just made in America. Everything in the unit is available for purchase. Using an app, you download the Go Local app. There's always an app. You spend a week, you spend a month if you're a corporate guy traveling or you're on a vacation. Gee, I love this thing. This is a real, I love these 100 100 thread count sheets. Bingo, bango, boingo. You order the things 
and and they deliver them right. To, they deliver them, and you're done. You do, they deliver them right to your house, at at the core of it. And it's kind of counterintuitive because this is not Middle America. This is Massachusetts. It's supporting the made in the USA made made in the USA economy. I think it's pretty interesting. That is, I like it. All right. Okay, Ivanka Trump is closing her namesake fashion brand and planning a longer-term focus on policy in Washington. So this answers a question that's been out there, and that is how long she and her husband, fellow White House advisor Jared Kushner, I'm sorry, I thought, hasn't he vanished off the face of the earth lately? Um, Kind of. Would remain in the administration for the rest of Mr. Trump's term. It looks like they're choosing politics and government over uh, over commerce, although she got thrown out of Nordstrom, right? They, 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 yes, they, Nordstrom they, stopped selling her stopped things selling a while back stuff. after people moved to have her goods boycotted. So th- that was boycott related. It wasn't quality or like this stuff is garbage. It was just it was boycott related. So she got thrown out of Nor- Nordstrom. Well, they cited poor sales. Yeah. Nordstrom cited poor sales, but it came on the heels of people urging boycotts. So most likely the urge of the boycotts was the result of the poor sales. She launched this brand in 2014. It really did soar, like mm-hmm. for real, in 2016. But then the company became a lightning rod, lightning rod for critics. Um, uh, you mentioned Kellyanne Conway went out and basically did a commercial. Please buy Ivanka's <laughs> stuff. I think that was really um, indicative of things going off the rails a little bit in the intertwining of the Trump businesses and brand for not only the hotels, but Ivanka's company uh, with, you know, Trump being in the White House. Every job lost, I think, is, is really too bad. I got to say, I guess we're looking at 18 jobs here. That's it? I think so. Not 18,000. Not 1,800. Not even 180. There's only 18 people running so the Ivanka Trump company. They hadn't really the, the brand hadn't really grown to a critical mass, and and I think that that is. Uh, I think it's better for her to say she shut the doors down than sit back and really wait for it to fail. Um, what's interesting is that you know people are saying what this means for their time in Washington and and what they're committing themselves to, and we actually haven't been seeing a lot of Ivanka Trump or Jared Kushner lately, so. Um, maybe that'll change. I think Jared Kushner's on like a container ship somewhere, <laughs> honestly. Anyway, In the middle of the ocean? Ivanka says uh, she's uncertain whether she'll return to the retail industry once she leaves Washington. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Up next, my interview with Dan Kennedy, author of Return of the Moguls. 321 Go is recorded in Studio 108, just off the historic Tip O'Neill Room at our building in the heart of Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Hello, I'm Cosmo Macero, and this is OA On Air. Today we're talking to Dan Kennedy, a longtime Boston-based journalist, one of the premier media critics and media writers in the U.S., a professor at Northeastern University, and author of the widely acclaimed book, Return of the Moguls, How Jeff Bezos and John Henry Are Remaking Newspapers for the 21st Century. Dan, it's great to have you here with us. Thanks for having me on, Cosmo. Excellent. 
Um, all right, let's parachute right into the middle of this complex and, 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 and pretty important business challenge that Return of the Moguls examines. And then maybe we can walk through a bit of how the book came together. And I, I'm also interested in some of the history and the findings uh, and a little bit about your process. But if we operate on the assumption that Jeff Bezos, Amazon founder and owner and publisher of the Washington Post, and John Henry, principal Red Sox owner, retired commodities investor, and owner-publisher of the Boston Globe, are two of the leading forces right now trying to rescue the print news business model. How successful, Dan, have they been so far? And is there any reason for genuine optimism? Uh, okay, I would say that so far, Jeff Bezos at the Washington Post has been fantastically um, successful. But there are some unique reasons for that that really can't be transferred to other newspapers. Uh, John Henry has had, you know, here we are, we're almost upon the fifth anniversary of John Henry announcing that he was going to buy the Globe. And we're still trying to figure out whether he's going to get there or not in terms of reinventing the Globe as a sustainable, profitable business. Now, Henry has a much more difficult challenge than Bezos. There's nothing worse than trying to save a large regional newspaper in this market. Uh, Bezos, by contrast, uh, was able to do a couple of things that other newspaper owners just can't do. Uh, first of all, he took a newspaper, the Washington Post, that traditionally had been a large regional paper, almost with more in common with the Boston Globe and the Philadelphia Inquirer, than it had with the New York Times and the Washington po and the uh, Wall Street Journal, and instead Bezos came in and said he, he, he didn't actually say this. I'm reading his mind. Uh, he said, um, "We're done with that. We are now a national digital news organization. Uh, we'll still have a print." product for people who live in the Washington area, but basically we're going to get big and we're going to go national. Uh, very quickly built the Post national uh, digital traffic to about 80 to 100 million unique visitors a month, which was approximately the same as the New York Times. Uh, now one thing we've learned about the newspaper business in the last 10 years is that 100 million unique visitors plus five bucks will get you the Sunday Washington Post. It's worthless. However, you can convert some small percentage of that traffic into paying digital subscribers. And uh, the Post has been very successful at that. They now have over a million paying digital subscribers. And at least according to the Post, I always use that caveat because they don't talk about their numbers, uh, they have been profitable each of the last two years. Now, by contrast, John Henry with the Boston Globe has to, is stuck with the Eastern Massachusetts audience, uh, which is a great audience. I mean, after all, you and I live here. Absolutely. Uh, but it's not as large Prime as a national. demographic. Yeah. Exactly. But it's not as large as a national audience. So Henry has been stuck with trying to get a relatively small number of people to pay a large amount of money. So I think we know that a digital subscription of the Globe is actually pretty expensive compared to other newspapers. It's $30 a month. Uh, print is very expensive. Um, they've had some success in doing that. Um, they had a goal of hitting 100,000 paying digital subscribers by the end of June. Uh, they fell a little bit short of that, but not too much. 
and uh, they are moving ahead with that strategy in the hopes of at some point breaking even. They believe that if they can get to 200,000 paying digital subscribers, it starts to look like a sustainable business. But as they say, the first 100,000 is the easiest. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the numbers because th th there's a conversation, I believe, between yourself and John Henry in the book where he's, he's almost incredulous that, uh, that, that there aren't enough readers out there, and, and I think it means that he thinks that there are, who are willing to pay, pay essentially 99 cents a day right. for the Boston Globe. And, and when you think about and, and I, I think I might agree with him, and when you think about all the different things now in the digital economy where you will drop 99 cents easily on a, on a daily basis for something digital, right? You, you talk about in the book that versus the, the, the or he does, the 399 Starbucks, what's the value you get out of that versus an entire day's Boston Globe. But I, but I do think people are, are into that habit now of making these digital purchases, these almost automated, because they've got a credit card lined up on all different types of platforms, that I almost feel like the, the right marketing strategy probably exists somewhere to, for people to say, well, yeah, I, I pay a dollar a day for the, for the digital globe because the tangible value of newsprint I now recognize was just a habit I needed to get out of. Right, right. Well, I mean, and in fact, the globe has had some success. They haven't had enough success, uh, but they have uh, grown to 100,000 pretty quickly. And, uh, and, uh, and later this year, they are going to switch to the Washington Post's digital platforms known as ARC, um, which will provide a much better reader experience, especially on mobile. And the hope is that, uh, you know, that has nothing to do with the journalism, but if you're going to pay for a product, first of all, the content has to be worthwhile, but second of all, it also has to be a pleasure to use. And right now, the globe on a phone is not particularly uh, pleasant to use, and that's how people are getting most of their news these days, on their phone. So that should make a big difference. Um, you mentioned that people are starting to be willing to pay for digital content, and this is true among millennials as well. Um, there, there was a sense for a long time that people wouldn't pay for news. But what have we found out? People will pay for Netflix, uh, they'll pay for uh, various types of online products. And so therefore, the idea of paying for news doesn't seem as weird as it might have seemed five, six, ten years ago. And so people are starting to do that. But I do think there's a ceiling, and we have to be very careful about that. Uh, you just look here in Boston, there are a number of free alternatives for news uh, ranging from, and, and I just mean online, from the Boston Herald, which obviously is a lot smaller than it used to be, but it's still a free uh, online newspaper, uh, the two big public radio stations, WBUR and WGBH, one of which I uh, work for. Um, the, the danger is that a lot of people will look at one of these free alternatives as being maybe not as good or as comprehensive as the globe, but good enough, and sure. they don't have to pay. Plus, there's just the information and news clutter that exists all around us, which you talk a lot about. Just the fact that news has been commoditized, and you know what? It's good enough from my, from my Twitter or Facebook feed or whatever Google app that gives me the top stories, and I'm all set. 
that's a real difficult thing to overcome it when is. you're trying to sort of define your content as worth an investment of X number of dollars per month. It is, and plus there's been this enormous increase in news interest because of uh, all of the uh, tumultuousness of uh, the Trump administration. Well, the Globe has benefited from that to some extent, but it's really the New York Times and the Washington Post that are going to benefit mostly from that. And when people look at the possibility, they look at subscribing to the New York Times or the Washington Post and paying less than they do for the Globe, uh, the Globe is kind of a big ask, especially since their sweet spot is a certain type of regional news that uh, has maybe a lower ceiling in terms of interest than some of the big national and international stories. I, I found it interesting. I, I think it was a little risky for the Globe editor, Brian McGorry, to, to, to make that shift public that we're no longer a paper of record, but an organization of interest and a curated reader experience. Mm. I, I really think the New York Times still believes that it is the paper of record for, for the nation for, and maybe for the world. And if you're the Boston Globe and you're a reader who, who counts on, on them, it's kind of dangerous to say, you know what, we're not going to comprehensively cover this, this very large metropolitan community anymore. That, that, is, a, that is a tough sell. Uh, I think that what McGrory was trying to say, and I hope I captured this in the book, is that we have to figure out a way not to bore you to tears with minor incremental stories and yet be there when there's something big going on. Sure. So if there's a big story out of City Hall, a big story out of the State House, we're going to be there. But the problem is, and I asked McGrory this, I said, isn't the problem that you kind of have to be there every day in order to uh, understand and be able to put in context the really big stories when they happen. And I will say he agreed with that proposition and uh, we both agreed that that's really the challenge. How you meet that challenge, I, I think, is um, it, it remains to be seen because I think we both know that so much of journalism is just showing up day after day after day. All right, look, we've been talking to Dan Kennedy, author of Return of the Moguls, available again at Amazon.com. It could be ordered through your bookseller. Dan, thanks so much. Uh, it's really been a treat to have you here and a real, uh, a real pleasure. Thanks for having me in, Cosmo. It was a lot of fun. All right, terrific. You've been listening to OA On Air with Dan Kennedy. I'm Cosmo Macero. If you want to hear more from Cosmo's interview with Dan Kennedy, go over and listen to OA On Air Extra for an extended interview. Now, here's a sneak peek of my interview with Senator Barbara Italian. Earlier this week, State Senator from Massachusetts Barbara Italian found herself in a unique situation where she had an invitation from Fox and Friends to appear on their show. Some say she may have hoodwinked them a bit, but she seized the opportunity, went on Fox and Friends, and delivered her message. We're talking more to her now. So thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. You have um, had a very busy and interesting week. Understatement. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, you made, we'll call it an appearance on Fox News earlier this week. Um, you were 
prematurely cut off from your appearance uh, on Fox News this week, but you certainly um, you made a point and, and you came out and, and sort of spoke your your opinions on an issue. Can you just kind of walk us through like what happened, how it came to be? I know there's been a lot of different sides of the story out there, sure. so we'd love to hear yours. So on Sunday, while I was out in Fitchburg doing one of my kitchen table conversations, someone from Fox and Friends contacted my communications person. Uh, he had worked for then Congresswoman Ann Kirkpatrick. Uh, that was a decade ago. Um, apparently Fox doesn't carefully check their rosters and decided to give him a call. Uh, and we learned after the fact that uh, they tried to get Ann Kirkpatrick to appear on Fox and Friends on Saturday and they had uh, declined and not returned the call. So they reached out to my communications guy uh, who they thought still worked for, and they thought she was still a Congresswoman, Ann Kirkpatrick. And uh, we decided that if this was for real, that this was an opportunity to get onto Fox, it's virtually impossible to break through if you do not hold and adhere to their party line. And we thought this was an opportunity to potentially directly address President Trump, as we know that he watches that show as his news and information source. So we decided to um, have me go on. It was a Skype interview, so they were not coming with a camera crew. We set up and, um, you know, so there I was at 5.50 Monday morning sitting there, uh, you know, hoping that we'd get this opportunity to break through and provide a real message to the president that, you know, in my opinion, as a mother of four children, what we are doing with our border policy, rounding up immigrants that are in search of a better life, separating children from their parents, putting people in cages, uh, children may never see their parents again. Um, it's just wrong. It's immoral. It's inhumane. And it's illegal. So you had a brief window to, as you said, speak to directly to the president, um, also to a good portion of the country uh, who mm -hmm. watches. And you could have chosen to talk about really any number of issues that are important to you and important to um, the people, uh, your constituents, but really across the country as well. How did you decide that this, that the family separation, what was happening at the border was the issue that you wanted to use your, your moment to, to talk about? Because there are so many. There are many issues, but at this point in time, we have so lost our way as a country uh, with this policy. We have lost our moral compass. Uh, there are people that watch that show that have been brainwashed into believing that everyone coming over the border that doesn't look like them and doesn't speak the same language uh, is a criminal. Um, and, you know, I wanted to impart that we are human beings first and foremost. We are a nation of immigrants uh, and that we need to be a welcoming, uh, a welcoming country and that there are people that are here in search of the very things that my French and Irish uh, grandparents came to this country for, which is a better life and opportunity and freedom from political uh, instability uh, freedom from, from the violence that's going on in some of the uh, Southern and Central American countries. Um, and so I thought this was really the most pressing uh, issue of the moment that we needed to break through. And again, as a mother of four that cares very deeply about uh, 
you know, people and about humanity. I, I thought that this was the, the best issue to try to impart a, a differing opinion uh, to people on that, you know, that watch that channel. So for anyone who may not have seen the clip, which I imagine there's probably not that many at this point, but you weren't cut off right away. You, you said, you know, in fact, this is who I am and this is why I'm here and what I want to talk about. Perhaps they weren't listening because they, again, did not address you by the correct name. Mm -hmm. uh, were you surprised that you weren't sort of cut off right then and there or... Yeah, I had no idea how long I'd be able to go. I had a three-page statement I was able to get through page one. Uh, I figured at some point they were either going to engage in a back and forth with me or they were going to cut me off. And so uh, if they were smart, they would have, and if they were journalists, they would have engaged me in questions rather than they didn't know what to do because they are just reading off a teleprompter and providing, you know, a point of view, and I would argue a, a very narrow point of view. And so, yeah, they, they didn't quite get that I wasn't Ann Kirkpatrick. I mean, there was a picture of her up, there was a picture of me. After the fact, the gentleman who I think was quite embarrassed was putting up on Twitter, you know, it, it's not my fault that, you know, that, that it wasn't the right person. And, you know, I didn't pay attention to the picture. And if you've seen one middle-aged white woman, you've seen them all kind of thing, which is deeply offensive. Yes. But, um, you know, again, I saw it as an opportunity to speak truth to power. I've never been afraid to do that over the 15 years that I've served in the House and the Senate here in Massachusetts. Uh, I've done so over many occasions and, um, you know, saw it as an opportunity to break through and appeal to people's consciences. Well, you've certainly um, piqued interest this week, uh, for lack of a better word. And I, I know it's it's been a busy week for you, so we do appreciate you stopping by and talking to us about it. My uh, pleasure. Thank you very much, Senator Italian. Thank you. Thanks to Senator Letalian for joining us. To hear more from my interview with her, please head on over and listen to it at OA On Air Extra. And up next, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, Tom. Welcome to Two Minutes with Tom. Cayenne, nice to be back with you. Thanks for being here. Yep, thanks. So earlier this week, Commissioner William Evans announced formally that he would be stepping down uh, from his post as Boston Police Commissioner. Uh, Mayor Walsh announced that he would be appointing William Gross uh, as the next commissioner. It's kind of a historic uh, historic move for our city. Um, first African-American commissioner of the Boston Police Department. What do you think? What's that I'm mean? I'm thrilled. You know, as somebody who has lived almost an entire lifetime in the city of Boston uh, and in Cambridge, I must tell you that um, I think in, in any city, especially a city that's minority-majority, ought to have somebody at its head of some of these institutions, somebody like a Willie Gross. You know, he's been at the, at the, at the force for 33 years. He was the first uh, African-American to serve as, as Boston's um, uh, superintendent-in-chief, which is the second in command here in the police department to Boston. Uh, and so I think it's kind of a natural ascension for him, to be perfectly honest with you. What I really like about him is, and I don't, I don't mean for a second to tell you that I know him because I don't, but I know him through what I read and what I see. He's the type of fellow who can walk down the street in almost any neighborhood in this city, put his arms out and around and hug somebody. Mm -hmm. um, he's very welcoming. He did a peace walk yesterday through the Dorchester neighborhoods. 
uh, I, I think for the younger people of our city to see him doing that, talking, talking with folks, young and old, I think is really very, very important. So congratulations to the city of Boston and to, and to Willie Gross, who's our new superintendent. So Boston, as obviously you know, has a long, sort of complicated history uh, with racial relations. And, and I think there's been a lot of talk in the last few days about what this means for that. Um, I think people are optimistic it'll be a, a good step forward and certainly around community policing and what that and to what you just said he's really welcoming and he seems very not just welcoming he is welcomed in the communities he goes into yeah I, I, and what I really think is that his appointment by by the mayor shows growth and evolution and how far we have come over the last 30 or 40 years in the city of Boston from a point of, of high racial strife to a point now where we can have in one of our most sensitive positions a man of color who's also a leader and somebody who's respected by all of the people. And here's a, here's a man that uh, won the Robert F. Kennedy uh, Legacy Award, which is only given out when, when the individual understands social justice and, and things of equality. Um, so he's had a whole lifetime of providing leadership in the community. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Thanks for listening. And now that you're done listening, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, our website, O'NeillAndAssos.com, and YouTube, and really anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Talk to you next week.